think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, it's episode 59 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 60th episode. I'm Laura Carboneau. And I'm opposed to Jen <laughs> Thanks, Etienne. Um, moving on from there. Sorry, we, this is take two, and you can probably imagine what he said the first time. Um, yeah, sorry, it's been a little bit. Uh, hopefully, the Deliverology episode has been tidying you all over uh, for the last two weeks. Um, We've been missing in action, but perhaps not so much as uh, Nicole MP Nicola Delorio. We just went over this. Delorio! <laughs> we just went over this. Yep, you messed it up. Who hasn't uh, been seen in Parliament since September 17th. So, this is an interesting case because this is a guy who who um, said, I think, earlier this year that he was going to be resigning his seat in the House of Commons uh, before uh, the, the election, not just that he wouldn't be running again. And uh, he, he then got a job with a Montreal law firm uh, and then didn't leave his job as an MP and hasn't and sort of said, like, no, nah, I'm going to stick around. So uh, it's a little weird, and he seems to have kind of moved on with everything except for collecting the checks, as far as anyone can really tell. Nothing says someone I want to hire for my law firm, like the guy who ditches his job <laughs> as an MP without actually resigning. I mean, I think that if you're a lawyer, that that's smart, as uh, the U.S. president memorably put it. That's just smart. <sighs> yeah, well, we'll see how this one plays out. I, it's just a hilarious... I, I don't imagine this happens very often where MPs just go. No, just sort of ghost. You know, <laughs> willfully ghost the Parliament of Canada. It's pretty funny. Can you can you get some of the quotes from his colleagues in there? Where are they? All right. So it's a uh, uh, Melanie Marquis, so Canadian press piece. Uh, questioned Wednesday in Ottawa, several of Delorio's uh, Diorio. Diorio's <laughs> liberal MPs profess to be in the dark. I haven't seen him, and I have no idea what's going on with Mr. Diorio, uh, said Michel Picard. A similar message came from Diane Leboutier, who said, I haven't seen him either, so I can give you no more information. Uh, Ontario MP John McKay, for his part, expressed confusion. I, I thought he quit, he says. <laughs> <laughs> this is going well. I'm sure the whip... The liberal whip is just having an absolute meltdown with this guy. Yeah, I think that is probably likely. Or maybe it's just completely written him off and it's, like, just serene about it. It would, it would be really interesting to see if, like, six months from now, if this is, like, unresolved. Because ostensibly there are some sort of attendance requirements for MPs. Are there formally? Yes, I think there formally are. Okay. Yeah, I'm actually um, sure about that. I, I remember it coming up in terms of... Well, he was here for the opening. Matt Leave and providing oh, Matt Leave. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I honestly didn't You're think right. there was, but there is some sort of rudimentary yeah. attendance now that you requirement. Point it, now that you point this out, I, I remember us having this discussion at some point. Uh, not necessarily on the show, but at some point. Um, yeah, no, so I don't know. Maybe, well, he was here for the opening of, of the House of Commons and on the 17th, apparently. So maybe he's coming by and you know signing his name and then ghosting punch in you never punch out <laughs> going going into stealth mode um so the first thing we want to talk about because it's been a bit busy couple of weeks we won't hit on everything so one thing that we won't talk about this episode and I, I, we'll just get this out of the way is uh the introduction of the liberal uh, federal carbon tax um the carbon price uh which frankly like we would prefer to have someone who who is an expert with us to discuss it just because otherwise we're just kind of two guys who are like reasonably well informed but not specialists and we're not just too sure what we add uh in that regard yeah so 
It is a highly technical issue. Yeah, we'll come back. Um, we'll come back to talk about carbon pricing and sort of GHG emissions and and what Canada should or should not be doing in that regard uh, at another time. Uh, so maybe never. Yeah, we, I, I hope we, we will. We still haven't done our book club review or book uh, our book review yet. That but is we're, true. We're getting we're Shoot. getting there. We are one, one thing at a time. One Don't worry, Ian Brody. We haven't forgotten you. Yeah. Um, but we do want to talk about something that got announced the other day, which is a little more squarely in our realm, um, which is uh, the announcement of a, a federal debate commissioner, uh, the identity of which was unveiled along with the scope of that person's role. Atan, do you want to take us away there? Um, yeah. So the liberals announced, I don't remember the exact number, I think it was like $5 million um, to establish the federal debate commission. I don't, I don't remember exactly how it's dialed. Um, but the man in charge is David Johnson. Um, of late of, late of Rideau Hall. Late of Rideau Hall. Um, and a little panel of folks to basically put together two, uh, one in each official language, um, debates during every federal election is sort of the yeah. idea. So this kind of comes off the tail of a couple of elections where uh, debates were kind of used as bargaining chips by the various parties. Uh, famously in 2008, I believe, um, the NDP argued against the inclusion of Elizabeth May in the debate uh, that year because they the Greens had a sort of uh, cooperation agreement with the Liberals. Jack Layton expressed that it would be unfair for the Liberals essentially to have two seats at the table, uh, which I think is not an unreasonable way to look at it in that context. Um, and since then, it's kind of been like, okay, who's going to come? Who's invited? Front runners tend to not really want to show up to these things. Uh, Tom Mulcair in the last federal election was kind of hesitant about attending several debates, which actually I think cost him quite a bit of goodwill with people. Um, and yeah, so it's it's always been a sort of gamesmanship over attending or not attending. And there, there's been some of it. I think it really, yeah. I mean, it's it's obviously long going. When yeah, you have and, debates organized in an ad hoc manner. Yeah. There is. Pol- politicking that occurs yeah so basically what the the central dynamic is the person in front does not want to do them and the people in the back and especially the smaller parties really want as many debates as possible because for them it's it's free airtime that otherwise they you know they get on and and there's always a a balance between like hey do you want 20 people on stage or do we want to actually have like the, the clear sort of like government plausible um, contenders to to square off so that each can kind of present their vision. So there's a lot of things to balance there. And Canada has a history of horrendously formatted debates. That is true. Um, as well as set design. Our They're set well design is, is seemingly crap. Um, it always looks like it's some like 95 cable access show, like game show set that's been like redone with a coat of paint i mean that is actually probably pretty likely <laughs> like, <laughs> so in in the last one um the la- in the 2015 federal election so it was obviously harper it was a bit of an interesting dynamic because they sort of shirked the media conglomerate that had been doing it um in the past little while and went with some untraditional format so mclean's did the first debate mclean's globe and mail uh was it globe and mail yes it was monk debate on foreign policy right i'm not mistaken yes that's where that, that is correct stephen harper squared off with steve bannon <laughs> um so i mean i actually didn't have many issues with how the debates were run last time i think 
if you look at these niche debates, was the total viewership lower than in previous years? Yes. Did I still think there was a reasonable amount of diversity and interest and everything, you know, basically worked out pretty good? I thought so. Um, the liberals chose to make it part of their platform, which yeah. is, you know, it's one of the feel-good things. It's the most thing. navel-gazy things. Like. Yeah, it's one of the little <laughs> quick feel-good, take a jab at the other parties on the campaign trail. Um, but, like, it, just a really obscure thing to I mean, dedicate I think, time and attention to. I mean, yes, on the other hand, I think people don't like the kind of gamesmanship over these things. I think people would like there to be a kind of predictable attendance. I think people do care. Like, the people who care, obviously, are the people who care, right? And, the, you know, it's the, the good government nerds and the, that kind of person. But I think people do really not like the spectacle of, like, parties kind of, like visibly playing like games with like debates i think people want some clarity and like clear expectations over whether or not these things are going to happen and how they're going to happen i mean i'm really not opposed to this and, like, and the fine. people demanded that the liberals unilaterally impose their debate vision on the rest of the I mean, parties that's not like, what they're doing though pretty much what they're doing i mean they have a yeah i mean like of the 5,000 independent commissions this government has created. <laughs> uh, but no, I mean, like, I think David Johnston is a, is a very credible person to kind of put on this. Um, I'm, I really have no fundamental objection to this. I think it's, like, it's fine. Would no. it have been, like, my first priority for fixing elections? No. I think perhaps maybe if they had followed their other promise of, of instituting some kind of electoral reform, Dave, we'd be David Johnston in a better place. Is but, uh, Canada's Mueller. Like, let's, let's just be clear I think here. you are possibly the only person who has ever said that and <laughs> will ever say that, because, no, he is not. Except instead of the Russia investigation, he's in charge of electoral commissions. I mean, or in the sense debates. that he is someone who is in charge of something, I grant you that, <laughs> but other than that, I'm not really seeing it. I think there's a lot of parallels. Okay. I think we'll let the listeners decide on that one. <laughs> okay. So let's actually talk about the criteria because this is this is one of the questions. And when you say the criteria, you mean criteria for inclusion in debates. I was getting there. Yes. Okay. Um, <laughs> Just to be clear with people. I was getting there. Um, the criteria for inclusion, because this is actually one of the big questions, mostly around Bernier. I think it's yeah. hard to have a credible argument that the Bloc Québécois, who at one point was official opposition in our Indeed. country... Um, should not be included in debates, even though they weren't included in a large majority of, or not, I, I, haven't, I haven't run the numbers, but I'm going to say a large majority anyways, of recent um, debates. We will, um, miss, we will miss the steely gaze and steely presence of Gilles <laughs> Duceppe, though. Absolutely. Um, so Bloc Québécois is in under this criteria. I'll go over the criteria in a second. Yes. Um, Elizabeth May is in. Uh, obviously, liberal NDP conservative are in. The question really came down to Maxime Bernier and whether or not the liberals would just throw him a bone. And if they did throw him a bone, did they do it in such a way as to open the door? I, so on that question and that question alone... Why don't, why don't we get to the criteria first? One sec. Okay. I'm working my way there. I'm burying the lead. You, be, you definitely are. Be still. Um, I think they threw him a bone and they gave him a window if he gets his shit together. Yeah. Of being able to participate in debates. So let's talk about the criteria which have to be met. Um, so the leader of a party would have to meet two of these three. Number one, have a member of parliament elected as a member of that party, keywords, uh, in the House of Commons at the time the election is called. Number two, intend to run candidates in at least 90% of electoral districts. Wait, 
And number three, have either obtained 4% of the vote in a previous election or a legitimate chance to win seats in the upcoming election. So there are two pieces of fuzziness in there. And two I, wiggle words. One of them one of them is very obvious, and it's the third criteria as a whole. I think it's that having a significant... Or sorry, well, not... A legitimate chance yes. to win seats that, in the upcoming election. That is a bit weird, and certainly, what does that look like? It's hard to say. Are you just completely relying on polls? Like, are you relying on anything but polls? Are you relying on self-reported membership numbers? Like... There's a lot of, like, points where that is hard to, like, establish at an objective level what a, like, a realistic chance looks like. The other point in there I think is interesting is the intent to run in 90% of writings. Yes. Because, I mean, once again, how do you sort of falsify that is, uh, is an interesting question. So, I mean, if these debates are coming for sake of argument, like, 90, I mean, the debates are going to be roughly at let's say the 50 percent threshold of the rip period so yeah. midway of a let's say 36 day campaign yeah we should know how many like i imagine the registration deadlines are going to be passed so it's just sort of a weird like i don't know if you can still be registering candidates up until like well this is why the intent to run thing is is strange right it's yeah. like can you just say to the the Debate commissioner, yes, I intend to run candidates in ninety percent plus of writings. I guess my question is, and I don't have I don't have this information, but I'm sure it's not hard to find on uh, Elections Canada. Is like when's the registration cutoff to be included on the ballot? Uh, What's well, during the writ period? Well, it has yeah. to be. Yeah. Um, but like when? I, I guess there's some wiggle room around there in case people haven't. But yeah, and when are these decisions made on the part of the commissioner? Do you make them? When the writ period starts, if you're if you're a party that starts from nowhere and suddenly just surges in polling, does that constitute a realistic chance to win seats? Like I don't know, because once again, there you're relying on kind of the word of the polling industry and blah blah blah. It's, and like, it's also funny it says seats and not a seat, um, so it's, it's I think, plural. I think that I think if you were like for some reason someone did like a writing poll and like, so like you had like 70 percent then no, like maybe they let you in i don't know no my question is on this criteria alone if this was the only criteria yeah. a legitimate chance to win seats would elizabeth may be excluded from it does she have a legitimate chance of winning seats plural i mean i just don't think that the seats plural thing is like really a harsh stricture that you you have to have a realistic chance to win more than one i think it just like is like okay one or more okay I, that's I, how I, I read it i don't know sure. yeah but, I mean, whatever. Like, it, obviously, it's up to whoever is, I mean, guess, I guess David Johnston's interpretation will, is yes. what that looks like. He will be in charge of this. Yes. Uh, so, there's a lot of interesting stuff there. I mean, we will see how this shakes out. Um, Canada's Mueller, they call him. <laughs> no one calls him. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. Like, do you have any other significant thoughts on this? I, th I think it's a bit weird, frankly, that, like, I mean, yeah. I would say the advantage of the old system is that it was it was organic in a way that was occasionally quite frustrating, but certainly reflected the dynamics of how campaigns were going. This, depending on how these decisions are made, will sort of bake in a sort of status quo bias, I think. Um, and not that that wasn't already kind of the case. It certainly was, um, because it's very hard to get media to take you seriously as a small party, etc., um, but yeah, I just wonder if this won't like further bake in that kind of tendency, which I guess the liberals really wouldn't mind. 
uh, if the like fundamental electoral dynamics of this country don't change very much, and that sure. the sort of debate commission is a, a small part of gatekeeping legitimacy and, and that kind of thing. I don't know. I think it raises a lot of questions, and I think maybe this merited a little more, a little more scrutiny and debate. I'm still not really fundamentally opposed to the idea. Once again, I think that like a certain predictability is not the worst thing in the world when it comes to electoral context and this kind of thing. So, but, yeah. Hmm. So I'm not fundamentally opposed to it. I just think this was a problem that did not need fixing. Um, of of the problems, of the things to legislate and spend $5 million on, I, I don't think fundamentally that this was d- like debates big... in this country needed no, and in terms this of, higher or this hierarchy yeah. and structure imposed upon in, them. In terms of having people having confidence in elections, this is really not where people are looking right now, right? People are looking at this kind of like... Uh, mis and disinformation kind of stuff especially over yeah. the internet like it, it, people are looking at a very different part of the electoral system and there's as where the problems a are right lot now. more that the government could be doing there yes um and instead like the fact that you know there, there's so much going wrong in elections and in democracy right now that it seems weird that this is where you start. That debates yeah. and the, the other. I mean, it I is so. I, I would parenthetically add that it is the most liberal possible <laughs> response. That like, well, the only solution is that we must ensure that the debates are fa- fairly held. <laughs> and my my only other objection here, or I guess something to watch, is whether or not going forward these two debates will be the only debates. Well, Whether yeah, that parties is will have yeah. debates on the margin that they will establish under basically the old system. Well, whether whether these s- will pre- present yeah. as the floor or the ceiling. There's literally nothing that, nothing stopping them from doing so, I suppose. There, there's not. Yeah. But it depends if, I mean, if everyone sort of says, no, I only did, like, it becomes an excuse, right? Like, well, I, I'm, only, I'm print- only doing the official debates. Why yeah. would I do more than the official debate? And then to- we're only at two debates yes. rather than four. We're not on special topics. It's going to be yeah. generalist. So, I mean, we lose. Well, we, yeah. we stand to lose something. We will, we will see, I suppose. Uh, the other elections-related thing uh, that has happened the last couple weeks is the calling of the Leeds-Grenville by-election, uh, which was vacated by the untimely passing of conservative whip Gord Brown. Former whip. Oh, was he former at that point? I believe so. Okay, well, my mistake then. Um, but yeah, so that that by-election has been called. However, as uh, astute listeners will note, uh, there are actually currently other vacancies in the, the federal parliament, including uh, Outremont, York Simcoe. Uh, oh, there's another one in BC somewhere. Where is that? Mm, no idea. Yeah? No, okay. Must no. not be an important one, then. <laughs> yeah, so, obviously, we're, we're sort of talking about Burnaby South here, where uh, Jagmeet's saying the leader of the NDP has said that he is running and has, in fact, been nominated as a candidate uh, for the by-election. Uh, the Liberals took some heat over calling one but not all of these by-elections, um, for the obvious reason that people sort of saw it as partisan chicanery, which, of course, it, it is. Um, but, yes, yeah, so that's—and it sparked a kind of— uh, low-level heat of the liberals saying, well, why didn't he run before? Oh. And, yeah. Oh, and worse reasons, too, I would say. Yeah. So what was I your mean, other example that we were talking about earlier? Um, well, so, yeah. As soon as this happened, you know, everyone started, was pretty surprised um, and thought that this was pretty much a low blow because typically there's been a reasonable amount of deference paid to party leaders. Yeah. 
um, giving them like a fair fight and opportunity to get into the house because this is something that has historically happened, you know, a, a number of times, um, including among very prominent um, now prime ministers, Stephen Harper, Joe Clark. I believe Tommy Douglas at some point was in this situation. Mm-hmm. Um, however, the liberals have not abided by this convention. So there's let's not get this confused with the convention of letting the leader run out of post. Yes, yeah. I, I think for which we've talked about before. For all and, intents and yeah. purposes, these are, these should be separated. Yeah. Um, but in terms of calling the by election and giving them an opportunity to run, whether or not that's opposed, I mean, the NDP has never been in the situation. Um, of uh, federally at least of having to make that call so it's not one where you can point to the NDP's record and say oh they didn't abide by this tradition because they've never been in charge of calling by elections right. federally yeah um, so let's just start by putting that off the table where it wasn't with the running unopposed argument um, and then the liberals you know as, as we they retrench themselves in this they say oh but there have been other by elections why didn't Jagmeet run in those yeah I mean let's let's face a very very simple truth that no party leader is going to run in a party or sorry in a um riding in a by-election where their party got like six percent of the vote last time like no no one needs to like intentionally martyr themselves just to prove that they're going to run at the first available seat and you know i think for if you were a a party leader whose party was you know very geographically evenly spread and like you could kind of run anywhere then like Good for you, but that is not the reality for, like, yeah. most parties, right? Like, no one would be telling, like, Andrew Shearer to run in, like, the gay village in Montreal. But why did the leader of the bloc not run in <laughs> well, Vancouver the- Island? <laughs> like- that would be a bit weird. Uh, the block is, as always, a special case here. And actually, I don't think they have a leader right now. They're, they're having a I mean, soon, if, yeah. I mean, if he becomes leader, why does he not run in Surrey? He should run in Surrey. Yeah. Like, just a really infantile argument. Yes. Um, what were the other arguments made? Okay, so this is one where there is a little meat on it, but it's still not that strong. Um, is playing the blame game and pointing the finger at Kennedy Stewart. Um, Kennedy Stewart announced... Newly elected Vancouver mayor. Newly Kennedy elected Stewart. Vancouver mayor, Kennedy Stewart. Um, playing the blame game with him, he announced that he was going to run for Vancouver mayor and then you know, stayed an MP over the summer, pushing out the date that the uh, prime minister was forced to call the by-election by. At the same time, the seat Uh. has been vacated and he could have done it. Like, it's not... Like, it was a bit weird of Kennedy to stay in his seat for for a while, but, like, at the same time, that literally doesn't change anything. So, the only thing it impacts is the statutory maximum uh, date at which the prime minister is obliged to call it by. Which is now sometime in March, I think. Um, But... It's six months what, from... What does that matter? It doesn't. And, <laughs> like, prime ministers don't have to go to the statutory date. Frankly, they shouldn't uh, for concerns about... Repu- uh, not reputation, but uh, representation. Yeah. Uh, d- well, this is another thing that it's, the, the it's, sort of backlash to the liberal decision has brought up, is that you're you're leaving a bunch of writings with no MP. Yes. With, with a full, like, calendar year to go before an election. Mm. Like, it's... Well, okay, yes. Well, no, no, I, w- I was... Uh, no, my, my Really closer to, to June, My groan there was a mocking groan. I, yeah. was, I was about to put on my liberal voice and say, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, I, I did misspeak a little bit, because it really, like, realistically, is representation until the month of June, uh, and not the month of October. 
sure. uh, because then the house will rise and then it will be dissolved sometime in the summer. So it, yeah, realistically, that person is not going to come back and sit at, at, at that point. Uh, but still, that, that's like two, it's one and a half parliamentary sittings. Like, So during this time, uh, I presume this is an area I have a lot of um, knowledge I presume the MP's office in these ridings is basically shuttered, that there's no staff working. Is that? I mean, there's no MP, so yeah, there's, they, they there's would not be there on anybody's no authority. No MP, yeah. yeah. So if you have an immigration case, et cetera, you're, you're <laughs> SOL. There's never been immigration cases in Surrey, I'm sure of it. <laughs> no, yes, yeah. This, obviously, it would burn to be. I don't think Surrey is an issue here. Oh, sorry, sorry, yeah. yeah I'm, but, I mean, I'm, same, I'm blending things together in my yeah. mind. Well, you're blending lower mainland cities that are, like, you know, they're not that different, that, so that fair been, enough. Yeah. Yeah, not not the most unforgivable mistake you've ever made. Uh, yeah, that's okay. I can't think of anything worse I've ever any mis- worse mistakes I've ever made. I well, we can get to that another time. Like, um, like the pronunciation of the MP's <laughs> name at, at the top. <laughs> yeah, I mean, once again, I'd put that pretty low on your your sins list. But um, yeah, so the, I mean, I think broadly the consensus has been that this was a kind of shitty thing to do. On the liberals' part, and like they've they've gotten some scathing editorials from people who are usually at least moderately friendly, the, the Chantal's Hébert and Susan's Delacorte of the world. So here's here's my issue: like the fact that political parties are going to be politicking is really a shock to no one. No, and it, like but, broadly, it's fine, right? But yeah, I mean these these aren't the most egregious crimes in the world. Yeah, but. Doing this while claiming to be holier than thou, we don't clap for our leader in question, period. They really have kind of dropped that, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> Politics done differently. Oh, I forgot like, about that all, one. All of this stuff yeah. is just garbage. Positive politics. Uh, that the, yeah, yeah, the sunny ways. Like, this is not sunny ways. This is Sunny ways is bullshit. It always has been bullshit. Yes. Um, and it flows into the... Uh, I mean, the uh, NATO interparliamentary... Oh, we're, we're jumping right over to that, eh? Okay, <laughs> well, I'll get started then. I mean, just just to mention in passing, like, I, I don't want to go into the details at this particular point. I, I haven't um, talked to anyone who's been in the room and has a very good account of what went on in that room well, we and video. sort of what the motivations <laughs> of the players were. Suffice it to say, just to sum it up, there's, there's two stories that have come up. Um, so this was a meeting held not after hours, but likely after five o'clock of yeah. the the interparliamentary NATO. Yeah, and usually these these kinds of caucuses, where it's like all party caucuses, interparliamentary caucuses, are kind of just like, I mean, one step above social clubs. I would say, like, it's really not very. There's not a lot of like. Maybe there's like one or two exceptions that like some really angry nerds are going to be like, well, my boss works for the parliamentary so helicopter caucus. There's, so. a, there's one distinction I would make here because I, if I'm not mistaken, the interparliamentary, I actually really should look up the full name for it, um, but it is like an officially sanctioned. Uh, so it's an official NATO fan club. So I, I think it's important sort of to put a lay of the land here first very quickly. I, I want to separate this into two real categories. The first is like the officially recognized associations and interparliamentary groups. Um, in that there's three categories. There's multilateral associations, bilateral associations, and interparliamentary groups. Let me give you some examples. Uh, the one we're talking about is the Canadian NATO Parliamentary Association. There's also the 
Canadian branch of the Assemblé Parlementaire de la Francophonie. For Francophone, that was really well delivered. <laughs> <laughs> the Canada-German Interparliamentary Group, the Canada-Ireland Interparliamentary Canada, Group. Canada, whatever. Yeah, so it's a, a lot of, yeah. like, in it, like these are fairly officially sanctioned uh, long-standing groups with fairly rigid parliamentary structures around and them. And resources. And resources around them. Yeah. As opposed to caucuses um which if you're on the hill to be precise yeah you'll hear mention of caucuses there's steel caucus there's beer caucus there's sports and wellness caucus or something like that um some of these are the pet projects of individual mps or groups of mps uh some of them are glorified social clubs things along those lines they're not officially designated Um, I, You're not going to do official travel for the... They yeah. they interact with um, stakeholders a lot, um, but even the lists aren't necessarily made public. Um, one of the only places you can often find the list is on the Hill Times. We'll publish, we'll sort of try and aggregate this data yeah. and keep up to date on it. So th- these are very different things, and this distinction is important because the one we're talking about is basically a quasi-parliamentary committee. Not quite a parliamentary committee, but it, it is under the auspices of parliament. Yeah. And that's what you saw in, uh, I mean, following routine proceedings today. A lot There was what were essentially question debate around whether or not the proceedings were a violation of the rules of parliament and such. Mm-hmm. And well, so yeah, the, we're getting ahead of ourselves here, though, because you haven't said what happened. You're really a, a lead barrier. I, I presume people read the news. <laughs> uh, you can't always count on it. All right. Care, care to explain what happened? Sure. So they had a meeting of this. Uh, we're, we're recording this on Halloween, the spookiest night of the year. And uh, on October 30th, which was last night for us right now, but maybe a different night uh, when you're <laughs> listening to this, um, the the Interparliamentary NATO Caucus or Association had a, had a meeting where the chair of that committee or association who is leo or was leona alislev who as astute listeners may remember was a liberal until uh the first days of this parliamentary sitting where she crossed the floor to the conservatives uh the liberals did what vindictive political parties and that is all of them uh do in this kind of situation and used their their majority and then sort of well, you, you, you make you make a face. Well, use their majority. So this is actually where it gets okay. Well, used their having the most people in the room at the time. Yeah, presumably? like okay. it, it, it came down to some real okay, like student can I government. The, can I get to the end of the sentence? Sure. Though? Okay. Fine. So they used their majority in the committee at the time of people who were in the room uh, to remove her as chair and install uh, a different person. Yes, the vice chair, the deputy chair, or something like that. Yes, so uh, that was received poorly, I think it's fair to say, and sparked some quite raucous um, interactions where parliamentary security came into the room and sort of asked people to leave, and it was uh, it was quite a quite a show. So a few things to note here. I, I think the first is, the timing of this is all very suspect. They didn't do it right after. Um, so, I mean, the, the background here for anyone not aware is Leon is the MP who some months ago... I, I did oh, say that. Oh, did you? Yes, I did. Uh, Carry I, on. I wasn't listening. No, I know. Yeah, that's, that's, that's all right. Carry on. Um, so, they didn't remove her immediately afterwards. Apparently, she has been doing work for months 
uh, because there is an upcoming NATO interparliamentary whatever meeting. Can in... you imagine being a big enough nerd to go to one of these things? <laughs> Just saying, like in Halifax, uh, coming up. Um, so they basically let her do all the work and then tried to give her the boot at the last minute. Nice. And, and in order to give the boot, one of the, I mean, one of the pictures that came out of this, apparently people were registering memberships day of to fill people who, you know, had no interest. There's allegations that the whip was standing at the door forcing, uh, MPs and ministers to stay in the room until the whole thing had concluded. There was a picture of a very unhappy looking Bill Blair, Oh, yeah, he um, looks grumpy. Sitting in the room. Like, the yeah. fact that you're sending ministers in to remove this, like, oh, it's just, it's really painful to watch. The family never forgets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is there not better things your ministers could be doing on any given night than being tools of your vindictive revenge? I mean, you know, maybe that was usually his racquetball. It got canceled. You never know. <laughs> You never know. So that, that I think, is the actual story that came out of here. And then on the other side has been this temperance story of good behavior and bad behavior. Okay, I think that's so a little... Laurent would like yeah. to speak for the temperance movement. I don't the... think that's what I'm saying at all. So what happened was you had a bunch of Tory staffers, as it turns out, who uh, were, were singing raucously in, in one corner, which, you know, I think it's not wrong to, like, a couple layers here. I think if this had been MPs uh, drinking something out of solo cups that they were pouring from glass bottles and, you know, singing from their prepared songbooks that they brought with them, I think that would be, like, one thing, right? Because uh, they're MPs, they're elected. If they want to do that on their time, that is, you know, that's for voters to sort sure. of, like, if you want that person representing you or not, That that's really, like, it's it's out of the hands of the institution, I think when you have staffers doing that at a meeting of parliamentarians, as you say, one that is sort of quasi-parliamentary in 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 its uh, sort of powers and composition, like, that is really inappropriate. And I think, like, you know, for people who have worked on Parliament Hill as staff, like, if you can imagine a sort of, of meeting that's going off the rails, it would never occur to staff, it doesn't occur to staff to, to talk out loud in these things, right? Unless it's, it's too to the MPs you work for. And it's not something where someone would stand up with a songbook and start draining a, you know, a solo cup of gin. Like, it's just... <laughs> reportedly vodka, actually. Reportedly vodka. But it's just, um, it's just, like, total... Like, it would never cross my mind as a political staffer to do something like that. It just blew my mind that someone would think it, that was appropriate behavior for someone who's unelected at a quasi-parliamentary committee. It really did. I was like, it's just so, so, so unprofessional. It's not just it was a temperance thing. I don't care if people are drinking. It's like, it's their lives, whatever. But like, I mean, we, we do this podcast while drinking all the time. Like, <laughs> it's fine. But like, once again, when you're sort of on the clock and it's not even your clock, it's people who are elected's clock. Like, no, that's just it's beyond the pale. You know, I can actually... So, here's... Here's my trying to find the middle ground here. I actually support to a reasonable extent that argument. Um, I, I, I mean, if we are going, and I, I think we should, see this sort of meeting as among elected officials. Yes. Ca caucus, and like under, had, in, in, under in, the yeah. auspices and sort of the jurisdiction of parliament. Yeah, because if it had been like anti-vax caucus, like I wouldn't really care. It wouldn't be yeah. as big a deal. But like, yeah. All of that being said, 
Uh, that has not been the story. It's not the, it was this the appropriate role of staff. It was more the, should staff be drinking out of red cups and having alcohol? Like, a lot of people, I think, commenting on this. Well, not, I think not the journalists, can, but people on social media sure, people don't kind of, have a good sense of when the on hours are, the off hours are in Parliament, and the culture of alcohol on the Hill. Not sure, that there haven't been I, problems there. Yeah, that's the thing is I don't think that's a healthy culture kind of to begin with in a lot of ways. And, and you know, not to, to let myself off the hook here because, you know, obviously anyone who's worked on the Hill for any length of time like has has had drinks like on on the premises, if you will. Yes. Uh, because there there is so much like alcohol at you know receptions that kind of thing uh, and even just like you know you you go to, to brixton's or whatever as an ndp staffer or wherever else as, as other staffers have to work and it's it's kind of just there is that culture and i don't think it's a great culture necessarily all the time i think you know there's there's a balance there as with most things um but yeah like that's not really what's at issue here for me i agree that that's what the coverage is focused on and i agree a lot of it is a little puritanical and kind of shitty uh, and I think staff, like, you know, they, they are, for the most part, for the most part, adults, and it's really their decision uh, what to do, but, yeah. So, this is where, let, let me loop these two narrative threads together. Sure. I think, in having this conversation about, you know, this petty vindictive move by the government to punish a floor crosser, using their ministers and, you know, the, the full force of the government benches... Um, that story has been drowned out by the this dulcet tones of a row full of conservative staffers singing Barrett's Privateers. But <laughs> by, by the temperance movement story, um, which I think is like, I mean, I think for people on the Hill or people working in politics or, you know, conservatives or what have you, I think this is one of the stories where it's like, Okay, whatever. There was drinking that was inappropriate, but like, and it's a real shame that it drowned out or yeah. is being used to drown out the real story. At the same time, if if the behavior of staff on premises is legitimately shocking to the people who elect the people that staffers work for, then like maybe staff should consider that and act accordingly. Frankly, like you know, like your job is ultimately to get your boss reelected, not to have fun on the hill like though that is you know that is that is cool and, and good but like i think if legitimately like you you should just think about it and like if that's worth it to you i don't know it, it just once again like i think people are adults and they can make their own decisions about this but like you, you do need to think about how this reflects on the people you work for that, that's my take let's i mean yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> i think mm. professionalism in general is a good thing and there should be more of it i think that that's my my stance on professionalism i'm pro more mariachi bands uh, well that's that's different though <laughs> that's not kidding. like yeah whatever well yeah anyway um they were actually staffers they were three, that's what i'm saying they, they were, were they were three staffers oh were they actually and, yeah. okay well i mean then no, I i'm think, completely oh. kidding they were not pressing that staff. i mean if you have a talented a uh, good couple talented guitar players in there you know <laughs> it was actually a requirement was yeah. the ability to play musical instruments yeah if just he, like if he was the higher got anyone who knows any mariachi songs here yeah that'd be good uh so the budget implementation act is sort of switch gears very very completely here to the point that it's probably destroyed our transmission so um, but, but yeah, so the Budget Implementation Act was, was tabled the other day. Uh, BIA 2. Yes. Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> um, and it is really, really long. So let's, let's start out with a little bit of a primer on BIAs. 
Um, so the Budget Implementation Act, known as the BIA, there's there's two a year, um, generally. I don't know if there's ex- exceptional circumstances in which there's Let's others, say generally two. Typically two. Uh, one in the spring, one in the fall. The spring one introduces sort of the most, the key elements of the budget. And the fall one sort of follows up on that, tweaks things a little bit. Um, historically, they've been, you know, omnibusy. Um, because, I mean, for good reason. Yeah. Right. Because it's basically just like if your budget is like, here's how we plan, or here's what we plan to do this year, the Budget Implementation Act is like, here are all the fine details of that and exactly how we plan to do it. So it, it is like normal for these to be long and kind of like omnibusy. The, the first one when the liberals got into power was under 200 pages. Yes. This one is over 800. I think it's 850. Yeah, which is a lot. It, it depends how you count what annexes you count and things along those sure. lines so there's all there's always different numbers that fly um but this is basically the largest I, as i've as far as i've been able to tell maybe the largest bill that's ever been tabled in parliament um that really don't, yeah, yeah don't don't quote okay me on we should that. look that up but, later but like um top yeah. 10 for sure we'll top come back 10. with that trivia fact next week um top 10 for sure um so it's you know, problematic in its own right. These bills always have all sorts of nuggets that come out of them in subsequent days, months, Oh, because they're weeks. huge. They're huge. Yeah. As Nancy Pelosi memberly put it, we have to pass it to find out what's in it. Yeah, that's the case. The NDP were up today on a point of personal privilege, saying that this was basically uh, violating their the spirit of parliament. Yeah. And I think there is something to that, right? The, the core role of an MP who is not in cabinet, is to scrutinize and approve government spending. Yes. If they are unable to do that because what is presented to them is too voluminous and complex to be analyzed fulsomely in a reasonable amount of time, I think that parliament at that point is like really not doing its core role. Um, And that is a problem. It might as well be presented in wingdings and they're provided with like a decoder sheet and they have to decode it like at some point like what's what's the threshold here of too ridiculous yeah and i mean like people like let's kid ourselves here like parties do have like apparatuses that are sort of like you know they they were into into motion when these things come out right different critics look at different things it's there there's a system around this it's not like mps are just thrown this enormous stack of paper and told start digging um but still, it is. it does represent a real strain on the opposition's resources. And, like, to some degree, fair enough. Like, you know, they don't have to make it easy for the opposition. But on the other hand, like, there does come a point where you are using the machinery of parliament to obstruct the workings of parliament, which is, I think, like, something that people got very mad at the Harper government about a lot of the time. And not a good look for the liberals who politics differently etc so anyways blah 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 yes um perhaps something to think about for them so i think the ndp are pushing to have at least voting on it split and there is somewhat of a precedent here yeah uh to have voting on bias split into different chunks um this was a power that the liberals handed the speaker in one of their sort of parliamentary rules reforms um i guess speakers out pending a ruling on this one Mm -hmm. um but yeah, bad bad practice all around. Yeah. Um, so not great. And we shame. will probably come back in, in subsequent weeks with, with more policy details of what's actually in the BIA, but I don't think either of us have had time to scrutinize it in any sort of detail. I mean, yeah. So I, I, I saw have. I saw one piece that pulled out five chunks largely related to banking. 
One was about rural banks and their closure, how much notice they had to give, like little little things along those lines. Mm-hmm. Um, but the largest pieces that have been announced, they're the charity, uh, the changes to charities in response to yes, the, uh, the court ruling, the federal court ruling, yeah, some time ago uh, in August or July. Yeah, um, that is in there. Um, the carbon pricing. Um, authorities are in there to give the rebates through the tax system. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also put in the federal, the like uh, called the federal pay equity. Um, oh yes, right. Le- legislation clauses, however you want to consider it, um, is in there. So like in in any of these, there are some big announceables. Yeah. Um, but there's also you know well, ten, sort of reannounceables, I guess. Ten thousand clauses yeah. that relate to little minor things and you you often have to know what the hell you're reading to really know the significance of them and that's yes. why it often takes so long for journalists and critics and everyone to come through these things yes. and actually know what's going on yeah and i mean for busy members of parliament too it's just like you have a million things on your plate right so like tell, telling someone to go into the corner uh with the bia for for you know a day is like maybe something you can do, but you can't really spare a whole lot more than that. So what, one of the interesting things that I think is actually, so we've made the point that MPs are unable to scrutinize uh, something like this in a very effective manner. And they're given, you know, likely weeks. But the the inverse of that is, I wonder how much scrutiny cabinet can give to something that, like this. That is this. entirely fair, yeah. Like their government is putting it together. Um, but all these different chunks are coming from all different departments. Every department basically puts together their wish list for things that they want included, and PMO sort of PMO PCO triages the process to put together yeah. this you know massive legislation. But eventually, it has to go and be approved by um, cabinet. And I don't really know. I've never been involved in the process of how effectively cabinet can possibly scrutinize something no and i think eddie goldenberg's written in his book right uh the way it works uh for those interested published 2006 uh i remember details um yeah he talks about how they sort of try to involve you know cabinet to varying degrees of non-success uh in decision making and sort of oversight of these things and what they sort of use cabinet for and it really wasn't like a really strong internal challenge function at the cabinet table a lot sure. of the time. Like, there is some of that. There is some of that. It's, it's not that it doesn't exist. Treasury Board, which is a cabinet committee, that's basically its job. But other than that, it, it, you do have a lot of things on your plate. Like, you can't really be like, well, should we be giving $34 million or $35 million to, you know, the, the Greater Edmonton Dog Catchers Association? So... Yes to all of that, and I don't doubt that the conversations very around, well funded dog catchers around the cabinet table are often more political than wonky policy. Yeah. There are, I mean, however, like, yeah. My point is more just again the impossibility of scrutiny. Yeah, um, that you have this thing with so much momentum behind it, like. It's, yeah. it's basically I mean, you could the, the decision has already been made. It's a sort point. of a like a, a kind of deep state kind of <laughs> thing you could say that sort of makes all the decisions so something to uh yeah we'll, we'll put this on the list to come back to when we have someone who's perhaps worked in the finance minister's office or and, donald savoie and the, the dream the dream episode <laughs> of donald savoie um who has written in about this in his book as well about the impossibility of scrutiny uh and uh what is government good at a canadian answer Absolutely. published 2014 <laughs> 
Uh, I think that'll probably do it for us today, though we do want to note uh, with sadness and trepidation that Wayne Easter, best known for his work on our intro theme song, (laughs) uh, may not be running again, uh, the the member from Alpec said recently. Um, So, Wayne, hang in there. Uh, It would truly break us if you you left Parliament. You are an ornament to the institution. (laughs) And uh, if you do decide to to leave, you will be sorely missed. I honestly, so the funny thing about this is that neither Tan nor myself have ever met Wayne Easter. I've seen him in passing around <laughs> Ottawa several times. And whenever I see him, I often wonder, like, does he know that, like, this exists and that there's a show just by these two fucking doofuses that, like, <laughs> uses the speech I gave, like, years ago as their theme song? Like, is that weird? I don't know. Anyway, this is what keeps me up at night. Uh, you can follow us at ShortPantsPod. Someone's definitely going to add him now. Oh no! Yeah, you can you can you can follow us at Short Pants Pod, uh, Wayne Easter. You can definitely uh, follow us at Short Pants Pod, and we will have you on the show anytime you like. Um, also, I would note um, that you guys have been slacking in terms of rating and reviewing the show. Yes. Um, I haven't told you that in a while, but you you, you, you should definitely you do ungrateful that. hogs. <laughs> we give you this content, and what do you give us in return? Yeah. So, uh, I, I will also say I am. Slowly gathering trivia, parliamentary trivia of sorts, for another trivia-based episode. If you were listening to this last year or two years ago, however long it's been, you'd be familiar with that. Um, so send that to my personal DMs, if, if you could, please. And uh, anytime we go to put the show together, we're always looking for topics, uh, fun topics, things to talk about, in- interesting things. Um, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, you can always add Short Pants Pod. Yes, indeed. And we will read it and then discuss internally how to respond to you. It's very <laughs> very bureaucratic. Um, yeah. yeah, no, I think that, that that will, in fact, do it for us today. Uh, so thank you once again for listening. Every, and... every t- tweet requires a map. <laughs> and we will be back next week. Thank you. <laughs>